So, for me especially. All right, on that light board, Savvy, you know how to turn these up a little bit, or are they up? Thank you, there it is. I want people to see my bald head, that reflection. Keep them awake. I see somebody asleep, like, mm-hmm. I go over here. Mm-hmm. All right. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. And for those of you that have known me any length of time, you're thinking, oh my God, he's going back to John. Look at Phil. I come back to church and he's going back to the book of John. Just for you, baby. No! I am not going to teach the entire book of John. I never even got through the entire book of John in Bartlett in 15 years. We got through chapter 12 when we started Arlington. So, I am not going to exegete the entire book of John so you can all do what? Although it's a great book, and I, and I love to just read it. If you ever want to just be overwhelmed about who your Savior is, just read through the Gospel of John and, and just uh, focus on just reading that. It's an interesting book in many, in many ways. When I was first saved in 1970 as a young man, and particularly as I got into my, into my college years and as we were going to uh, different places, and when you would, uh, like I worked the Billy Graham Crusade in, in the Liberty Bowl in 1978, I worked there, I was one of the counselors, and when people would answer the invitation, I would meet with them, and what they always told you to do is you, you pray with someone to receive Christ, what's the first thing you give them? Copy of the Gospel of John, and tell them to read that, and so it's a very good book for new believers to begin and just to read but it is also one of the deepest theological books in the entire Bible. You could start, and I was discussing this uh, one time. I had a friend that was interviewing for a position at Second Presbyterian Church. It's a huge mega church, and I love Sandy Wilson, their former pastor. I used to listen to him all the time, and he's retired now. And she was interviewing with Sandy Wilson for this position at, at Second Press. And she had been in my class for years, and she was just telling him, apparently I came up as a topic of conversation to gossip about. Now, she told him, said, said uh, uh, my teacher has been in the Gospel of John for whatever number of years it was, and Sandy Wilson wrote me a note and sent it. He didn't even, we've never met. He just writes a note and sends it to me and says, I want you to know I could spend the rest of my, my career in the Gospel of John. I, I understand where you're coming from. And that obviously meant a lot to me, just from him, but I love the book because it is so deep and yet so profound and yet simplistic. And John's just, and I've told you this before, but it's kind of like John is just up on a mountain screaming, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. And I appreciate what Darren said today, and I think it's one of the reasons that God led me to want to do what we're going to do in the Gospel of John. As I said, we're not going to study the entire book, but what we're going to do is look at the I am statements of Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And we're beginning with looking at the prologue to set the context for all that. And as I was talking about what Darren shared earlier, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this was I've struck more and more and, and more people that I talk to and I interact with and, and come into contact with that, that are just hurting. And, and, and I'm talking about people in church and people who are Christians and going through very difficult circumstances. And for me, it's a great reminder to go back and study who is my Savior. 
just stop for a minute and think about who is this Jesus that I've given my life to, that I've chosen to follow. He said, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, daily, and then you can follow me. And that's a pretty tough standard. He did all the work so I can be redeemed. And then he says, now, if you're serious about your faith, come follow me. And Darren's absolutely right. What our nation needs more than anything else is just to turn to God and say, Lord, we need you. Repent. Lord, we want to follow you. So I think for Christians, we need the encouragement and the reminder of who our Savior is. Standing there yesterday and helping, officiating Mr. Wynn's funeral, Sean Wynn's dad's funeral. And you know, prior to opening the curtain and starting the funeral, we're back there and they're closing the casket and, and I'm just watching them. And I've done this 37 years and I've done many, many funerals. And that one was very special to me personally. And we've talked about that. But one of the things I was struck by and have been many times, but again yesterday, because Sean and, and Amy and their family is so special to us as a church and as a family that how much of their hurt, they were hurting. And that, that C.S. Lewis talks about loving to be, you're vulnerable. To love it all is to be vulnerable, C.S. Lewis said. We're different than the rest of the animal kingdom. And to watch them hurt, I hurt for them because my brothers and sisters in Christ, in their the particular case, Sean's family, they're, they're friends and Think about sweet Aaron and, and my granddaughter Ella. Basically, from the womb, they've been close friends. And how special that family is. And as the body of Christ, we need to be reminded that when one hurts, we all hurt. We need each other because the time's going to come when we're going to hurt. And I know every time I talk to Sean and I uh, text him or talk to him about his dad, you know, the first thing he'd ask me, How's Mary doing? Because he cared. He cared. And it's special what we have in Christ. And so as we look at Jesus in the Gospel of John and his I am statements, I hope if nothing else it brings you to a point where your life every day is a worship sacrifice back to your Savior for the sacrifice he gave to set you free. I love to share it this way. If Jesus never did anything for Randy, anything else, except dying on the cross and rising from the dead to set me free from the penalty of sin, I owe him what? Everything. If he had never given me my wife and my kids and, and the ability to to be a pastor of the church and all the friends that I have and, and the great life that he's given. If I didn't have any of that. And I just knew that I was set free from the penalty of sin and I had the presence of God and eternally I would be in paradise. That's, I owe him everything. And yet he's done so much more. Our God is incredible. We need to be excited about who our God is and let people know. So turn to John chapter 1. And just relax. I can buy my study Bible at home. If you open it to John, it just kind of falls apart. It just, I never, it never leaves my desk because I can't carry it anywhere. It just falls apart. But 
So this is my preaching Bible that I use here. All right, we're looking at John chapter 1, the prologue. All we got through last week was the title, or two weeks ago, I appreciate Cameron filling in last week. Two weeks ago, we got to the title. (laughs) I'm going to do better, I promise. Who is Jesus? Who is he? He's the I am. So it begins with, he's the word. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Verse 14, the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We will get to verse 14. What I want you to notice as we begin to put this together, in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. That means before there was time, and there's no, there's no tense, that verse is, he just is, he just existed. No beginning, no end, self-existent, before there was time, was the word. The word was with God, the word was God. So there were two persons there. One God, the word was one of those. And you get to verse 14, that word became flesh. That Greek tense of that verb became, in verse 14, is aorist, meaning at a definite point in time. For example, I was born January 17, 1954, at a definite moment in time at Baptist Hospital downtown, which is no longer there, that I even tore that building down. At Baptist Hospital downtown, January 17, 1954, my mom gave birth to me at a definite moment in time. At a definite moment in time, the Word, who was self-existent, eternal, that's number one on your handout, eternally, he is the Word, he became, at a definite moment in time, Jesus of Nazareth was the Word. The Word became flesh, comma, Jesus of Nazareth, and he dwelt or tabernacled among us. We'll talk more about that later. So, here's what I want, as we begin to look at this prologue, it's really fascinating. If you think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how does Matthew begin? Don't turn over there and look. You all know because you get your first New Testament when you were a little kid. They gave you a little white New Testament somewhere along the way through at the church. You got baptized, confirmed, whatever you did in your particular church tradition, and they gave you a little white New Testament at the Methodist church that I grew up in. You got a little white New Testament that you never opened again, and, and Matthew begins how? So, so-and-so begat, so-and-so who begat, so-and-so who begat, so-and-so, and after about five minutes you turn to your mom and say, what's a begat? I don't know what a begat is, and this is boring, and you never wanted to read the Bible again. I don't think I ever picked it up again until I was 16, and I got saved, and someone gave me a Bible and began to teach it to me. Matthew begins with the birth of Jesus Christ on earth, his physical birth. What does Mark begin with? Ah, a little different. You might know how Mark begins. Don't turn and look. Don't cheat. How does Mark begin? With Jesus' baptism. Not his birth, his baptism. So Matthew begins with his birth. Mark begins with his baptism. John the Baptist baptizing him. How does Luke begin? Hmm. With his birth. Here's, what, here's the point I want you to see. Matthew, Mark, Luke, talked about this a few weeks ago, are called the synoptic gospels, which literally means you see together. You take those three gospels, you put them together, you get a historical picture. Luke especially, you get chronological, and then you fill in the blanks with Matthew, Mark, and Luke give you a chronological picture of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, second person of Trinity, God in flesh. That's what you get with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They begin with Jesus on earth. How does John begin? Before there was an earth. He begins with eternity. That's the difference. John is not interested in presenting a chronological account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, even though he's going to give you a lot of information about what happened. That's not what he's interested in. That was not God's call in his heart. That's not 
why he was writing. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's writing for one reason and one reason only. That you would know that Jesus is God and that through him you can have life. That's called the gospel. But he doesn't present it necessarily chronologically. You have to fill in the blank, <clears throat> blanks in the, the time frame with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You put them together, context. So the synoptic gospels give you the layout. John gives you the reasons. We talked about the feeding of the 5,000. They recorded what happened. All of them do, all four gospels. But only one gospel records the sermon Jesus preached after the miracle. Guess which one? John. Because John's more interested in what's behind these events, not the events themselves. And God gives us the events, Matthew, Mark, Luke. John gives us the reason behind them. It's fascinating the way God put it together. So John begins with Jesus' eternality, not his earthly birth. He begins with God the Word being the eternal. So verse 1 and 2. Jesus is the Word eternally. Most important point, we've mentioned it several times, but... To fill in your outline, he's God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. In the end of verse 1, the word was God in the beginning. Very reminiscent of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. And that means before he created, and going to read, he created out of nothing. Before there was time, and then boom, God created. Same thing here. In the beginning, before there was time, he's always existed. Self-existent, the eternal God who created the universe. In the beginning, with God, all things, verse 3, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In the beginning. Look down to verse uh, 6, for example. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. Again, that verb tense in verse 6 is aorist. At a definite moment in time, this guy comes on the scene. His name is John the Baptist. This will be important later. But John the Baptist was about six months older than Jesus of Nazareth. Keep that in mind. We'll get to that later. Jesus himself said in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and was and who, who is to come, the Almighty. I am Almighty God. I am the Alpha, the Omega. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I am, I was, and I am coming back. It gets all the tenses covered, and it goes back before there were tenses. I am the Almighty God. When he uses the phrase, it's really fascinating. When he uses the phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega, he's like, take your alphabet, Greeks. And if you think Alpha and the Omega, how much of your alphabet have you got covered? All of it, from beginning to end, Alpha, Omega, Jesus says, I am everything. Or, another way to put it, look at the top of your handout, I am the Word. I am. We'll see later on. He says, before Abraham was, I am. So back to verse 1. In the beginning was the word. What, is, what does that mean? Well, the phrase, the word, we get, is, is our word, it's L-O-G-O-S, logos, or like logic. But the, when it says in the beginning was the word, it means it's the expression of thought. So when you encounter Jesus of Nazareth, you interacted with him, or you read about him, he's a, when Jesus spoke, and the Bible even talks about, even his enemies, the Jews and the Romans, they would say, particularly the Romans, like, well, this man speaks with an authority we don't know. And they knew Caesar. They were the Roman Empire. 
And he said, he has an authority that we don't understand and we don't know. So what the Logos means is that when Jesus of Nazareth, who was the, the expression God, Emmanuel, God with us, of the eternal God himself, it's the thought, expression of thought. Another way to put it is this. Jesus expressed to us the mind of God. In Hebrews 1, the Bible says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, the Son being Jesus of Nazareth. Last days, meaning when Jesus came, last days began, they will end when Jesus comes back. In the last days, God's way of communicating to the human race was through Jesus of Nazareth. And now we have the word of God, which is his story. History, even, is his story. What Jesus did was express to us as the word, the mind of God. So when you encountered him, you were encountering God. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. This is the end of the prologue, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, John writes. The only begotten Son, which means the unique one, the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That's the same thing as the Word. He has declared, or that, another way to put that is he explains God. In other words, you want to know God better? You really want to know who God is? You come to Jesus of Nazareth. Even if you're not a believer, you examine his life. This is how God would manifest truth to us. It's through a man like Jesus of Nazareth. Even people who deny that Jesus was God, what do they say about him? He was a great man, great teacher, great rabbi. Even if they don't believe that he's God. All you got to do is examine the things that he said that are recorded for us. And then even, not, even if you don't believe the Bible, you read like Josephus, Jewish historian. They were just enamored. What did Pilate say about him? The Roman governor, what did he say about Jesus? And he tried. I can't find anything wrong with him. I can't find any fault in this. Why do you want to crucify him? I got plenty of choices over here. Barabbas, for example, he deserves it. Why do you want to crucify this guy? See, it had nothing to do with Jesus' life. His words, his miracles, it simply was a moral choice. We refuse to submit to the authority of this man as God. He claims to be Messiah. He claims he can forgive sins. He claims to be God. We can't have that. He's got to go. And so they lied and said he was out to dethrone Caesar and got the Romans to have him killed, killing for the Jews. So back to verse 1. Jesus explains God to us, in the beginning was the Word. Here's a, here's a great way to look at it, especially if you're sharing your faith with people, which we should be doing, by the way, it's the reason we're here. Someone has said the greatest apologetic or defense of the faith, I don't really like the word apologetic, but that's the word that theologians have used forever, but the greatest defense of the faith, because it sounds like you're apologizing for something, which we're not, but the greatest defense of the faith, Christianity, or 
put Christianity aside for a moment, that, that there is a God is what? Creation. Where'd you come from? Where'd you come from? So here's what God does. God reveals his natural attributes, his omnipotence, his, his all, the fact he's all-powerful, his omniscience, that he knows everything, that he's omnipresent, that he's everywhere. The fact that he is different and he's, he's, he's supreme over, that he, he is the great designer and creator of this universe. Through the, the process of creation, examining creation with an open mind, not a closed one, but an open mind, brings you to your, what's revealed to you in that examination are the natural attributes of God. His wisdom, his mutability, and, and all the things we talked about, his power especially, and his infinity, his, his eternality. That's what you see when you examine creation. God's natural attributes. Creation reveals that. Then you examine the person of Jesus Christ. What he reveals to you are God's moral attributes. Justice, mercy, holiness, grace, love. When you see how Jesus interacts with people, when you see what he did, what you see is this is God revealing how much he loves us. Forget everything else and simply go to the cross. And it's the greatest expression of love that the universe has ever seen. Where Philippians tells us, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, because he became a servant. He loved us. Even hanging on the cross after being tortured and in the process of being tortured to death, he looked at the Romans who had done that to him and said what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The ultimate expression of love, grace, mercy, you find in the person of Jesus Christ. So you look at creation and you see the natural attributes of God. You look at Jesus, you see the moral attributes of God. He explains who that God is. That's why Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Just read through the Gospels, there's so many beautiful illustrations in John chapter 4, you have Jesus when he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. She had every strike against her that a woman could have in that culture. She was a Samaritan, she was a woman, and she was a woman of ill repute. And so the Jews' mindset with her was, she's worthless. So what did Jesus say? I've got to go to Samaria. I have to go see this woman to set her free. No one else even cared about her. He goes out of his way to set her free. He said, now go back. And she went back into her town of telling everybody that she met the Messiah. Remember, she's a Samaritan. Jews didn't even talk. They didn't even walk in Samaritan land. Like Jesus said, we've got to go through Samaria. The 11 boys said, no, no, no. That's, you've got the, you're not using Google Maps again. I thought, we're not going that way. I've got to go to Samaria. Do you not know that you're a Jew? We don't do, they walked around Samaria to go from, from Galilee to Judea. They, they went around it. And Jesus said, no, I have to go there. When he wanted to teach him about being, about being a good neighbor, what did he tell him? The parable of the good Jew. Is that what he told him? The parable of the good Samaritan. That's an oxymoron to them. 
So when they encountered Jesus, it was radically different. He treated people in a way they did not know or understand. He revealed the moral attributes of God. This is how you love somebody that hates you. You say, God, forgive them. Nobody did that. The Romans didn't even understand it. As we talked about earlier, they didn't even have a word for it in their language. For the humility of these Christians. They created one. When you encountered Jesus, you encountered God. I love the, when he goes into the synagogue and they hand him the scroll to read as a visiting rabbi. And he reads from Isaiah 61. Opens the scroll, reads it, rolls it up, sets it down and says what? I get goosebumps quoting it. What do you say? Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. He just claimed to be God. He just claimed to be God. By the way, did they like that? No, they weren't too happy about that. He says he can forgive sins. What is going on? Jesus revealed the moral attributes of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Turn over to John 17 for just a moment. John 17. I quoted part of this earlier, but I want you to see it. And now we go full circle. John 1, 1 begins with, before there was even time. In the beginning was the word, words with God, the word was God. Before there was time, before there was a universe, before God had created everything. John 1, 1. Now you go full circle. Jesus is on earth, been here 33 years, and he's about to go to the cross. This is, this is his last night on the planet in the upper room discourse. John 13 through 17. You get to chapter 17, he's going to begin to pray. Just prior to going to Gethsemane and going to the cross. 17, 1. Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. One of the most emphatic statements in the history of the human race, the hour has come. This is the hour they talked about before they created the universe, the hour of redemption. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. This is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work you've given to me to do. Now, <clears throat> verse 5 is one I really want you to see. Now, O Father, he's praying to the Father, going to the cross. Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you. What's the next phrase? I want us to all say it together. Before the world was. Woo. This is why I love John. It's powerful. He's saying, okay, Father, he equal with the Father, God the Father, God the Son. He's saying, now glorify me. That means to give a correct estimate of me to these people, like I've given a correct estimate of you to these people. I'm going now to do what you sent me to do. Glorify me with the glory which we had together before we created the universe. The Trinity, perfect harmony, love, fellowship, full circle. I've come, I've done your work, I'm now going to the cross, burial, resurrection, ascend to the right hand of the Father, full circle. This is what it means. The Word was with God. 
The Word was God. Jesus explains him to us. Now go back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The last phrase of verse 1, the Word was God. We've talked about that a lot. Please notice, this is really important. Does it say the Word was a God? Does it say that? If you get your Bible by the Jehovah's Witnesses version, you know what it says in their version? The Word was a God. Which means what? If he's a God, there's how many gods? There's at least more than one. Yet if you ask them how many gods are there, they will say what? There's only one. Only one Jehovah. It's important to let the Bible say what it says. In the beginning was word, words with God. The word was God. Not a God. One God, three persons. Islam, one God. Jews, one God. One person. Even in the church of Jesus Christ, there are people who uh, propagate and teach a thing called modalism. Which means there's one God, but he manifests himself at different times in different ways. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit, but not three distinct persons. What do you do with the Mount of Transfiguration? What do you do with the baptism of Jesus when all three are clearly evident and present at the same time? What do you do with John 17, 5, where Jesus said together in the beginning, and then John 1, the beginning of the word, words with God, the word was God. It's important we know who our Savior is. And we defend our faith in a loving, loving way. In John 14, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? In other words, I've shown him to you. I've explained him to you. Philip had been with him for three years. And yet they still were struggling. In Colossians, the Bible says it pleased the Father that in him, Christ, all the fullness should dwell. For in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What do we celebrate at Christmas? Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the message of Christmas. All right, back to John 1, verse 3. He's creator. Back to that ultimate apologetic again. again. Verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Saying it two different ways, emphasizing it. Only God creates out of nothing. And that's Genesis 1-1 again. Out of nothing, God created the universe. Here, same thing. Only God creates out of nothing. All things. The word. We know that later to be Jesus, but God, the Word, created all things. I will not say it because Mary's here and I don't want to get in trouble. So I'll let somebody else say it. All means? Thank you. All. He is the creator of all things. Through him, he's the agent of creation. Without him, nothing was made. Verse 3 again, all things were made. 
By the way, that's that aorist tense again, which means at a definite moment in time, God spoke and it existed. Space-time continuum that we live in. Another way that you know that there's something superior to us out there, even if you don't believe the Bible, even if you don't believe in Jesus, if that's why creation is the ultimate apologetic. If you examine the universe, forget that for a moment even. If I were to examine Darren Brady as, as complicated as he is, just one atom in your body and in your brain, your DNA is more sophisticated than anything man has ever been able to come up with. And that's a total accident. That's what we're told to believe. It is not logical. It doesn't fit the evidence. It's not scientific in any way. Something made us. Something made the universe. If you want to throw out the Bible, throw it out. Now tell me who made it. You know what Richard Dawkins said when he was confronted with that? He said, I guess aliens did it. The best he had. And he was the number one, at the time the number one spokesman for that. I guess aliens did it. I prefer to believe God did it because it makes more sense and it fits the evidence. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it bears repeating because it's important or it illustrates it so well. There's a commercial on TV now, current, right now. I don't know, I, I don't remember what being advertised, but Mary and I saw it and it just kind of jumped off. I've got these two kids, eight, nine, ten years old, and they're looking at their computer screen and being taught virtually by someone. And they're talking about how much you can learn, how sophisticated things are. And the last thing the teacher says to them is, and your brain is more sophisticated than anything we've ever come up with. We just can't understand it. And the little boy in the picture goes, boom. She just defended the faith, didn't she? And they didn't even know they defended the faith because what God says is, you're different because you're made in my image. You're different. You have a moral conscience even though you don't know you have it. Even if you're not a believer, don't people know there's such a thing as right and wrong? We've talked about this before. We know there's certain things you just, you, you can't do that stupid, that's wrong. You don't hurt a small child. You don't do that. That's wrong. Why do we know that? Because God created us with that conscience to say to us, I'm here. And then he sent Jesus Christ to reveal that. And so our conscience, which is seared by sin, can be set free through what Jesus did. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made through him. The creator of the universe is our savior. We have something to tell people. You would be, maybe you wouldn't. I was talking to someone last week and this came up about there were some kids that they were dealing with. I forgot who I was talking to. And they had never even heard of Jesus. They live in Memphis, Tennessee. The buckle of the Bible belt now, a lot of people have heard of, but they, you think they really know who he is? What he did? I'll give you a simple example. 
Just say you grew up in church and you're in your 40s now or your 50s or 60s. Whatever. 30s. And somewhere along the line growing up in church, you were hurt by someone who was in leadership in church. It could have been abused. Happens a lot. Lied to. Or you watched someone that you really looked up to and you thought a lot and and then you found out something horrible about that person. We talked about a few weeks, a couple of months ago, about Robbie Zacharias and how many people looked up to him and found out what he was doing. Can that turn you off to wanting to be involved in church as an adult? Guarantee you it can. And that's why it's so important that we're real. We can share with people who've been hurt by someone. I don't doubt that you've been hurt at all. But Jesus didn't do that to you. Someone may have done it to you in his name, and history is full of people doing the wrong things in the name of Jesus Christ. Full of it. He didn't do it. He came to set you free. So follow him and find a church that honors him and be part of that. That's what you want. Because that's how you'll find fulfillment in life. Again, I was thinking yesterday, Sean and Amy and that sweet family, and how important it is that we as the body of Christ and the family of God that calls Christ church home, that we love on them as they hurt. And you could see it even yesterday. I know they're loved. They know they're loved. It's vital. The church is important, not as an institution, per se, but as a body that takes care of each other. We all need one another. Jesus is our creator, eternally. Psalm 100 puts it this way. Know that the Lord, he is God. It's he who has made us, not we ourselves. Galatians says... He's the image of the invisible God, talking about, excuse me, yeah, Colossians says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that means preeminent over. It does not mean he was the first one created, despite what some of our cultic brethren would say. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, All things were created through Jesus, through Christ, and for him. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, Psalm says, and all of them by the breath of his mouth. Let all the earth fear the Lord, that all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. I want to read you one brief example of why this is so important. This idea of creation. There are 700, it's from Discovery Magazine, so this is not from a Christian perspective. Discovery Magazine, there are 700 quintillion planets in the universe. I don't know what a quintillion is, but it seems like a lot to me. 700 quintillion 
planets, only one like Earth. Quote, it's a revelation that's both beautiful and terrifying at the same time. Astrophysicist Eric Zacherson from Uppsala University in Sweden arrived at this staggering figure, a seven followed by 20 zeros with the aid of a computer model. He found that Earth appears to have been dealt a fairly lucky hand. In a galaxy like the Milky Way, for example, just our galaxy, most of the planets Zacherson's model generated looked very different than Earth. They were larger, older, and very unlikely to support life. One of the most fundamental requirements for a planet to sustain life is to orbit in the habitable zone of a star known as the Goldilocks region, where the temperature is just right and liquid water can exist. Earth orbits in such a Goldilocks region. I love that quote. We've been dealt a fairly lucky hand. That's it? That's all you got? God said, I created you. I love you. And I sent Jesus to reveal myself to you. Now come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Different. One last point, and we're done today. Look at verse 4. In the word was life. And the life was the light of men. In him was life. Zoe. Z-O-E. We get zoology from it. In him was life. Physical, spiritual, eternal. The word life is used 36 times in the Gospel of John. As, as creator, Jesus was the giver of life to everything. As a savior, he's the giver of eternal life to mankind. So here's my encouragement to you as we look at who Jesus is. That he, he's the great I am. And that you should never back away from defending your faith. And here's why. People, here's why. People have been hurt and lied to by preachers and other leaders and churches forever, that doesn't change the truth that Jesus is God. And he can set you free. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, as we close out our time together today, we just thank you that we have a God who's real. And we have a Savior who is alive, the resurrection. most significant moment in the history of the human race that God died and rose from the dead. We thank you, Jesus conquered sin and death, and that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he has the keys of death and hell. And he can set us free. We thank you not just for what Jesus did for us, what he continues to do at the right hand of God the Father, ruling over the universe, we are his bride. So, our Lord, I pray for us as Christians, we would be so excited about our Savior and lovingly put around our arms around fellow believers that are hurting and love on them, pray for them, encourage them, 
and then also lovingly share our faith. Gently, respectfully, lovingly share with people who don't believe in Jesus as to why we believe in him. A personal testimony that he set me free. Proof of history and in scripture that he's exactly who he said he was. The way, the truth, and the life. I thank you for these folks. I pray you'd bless them. Many of them are hurting. And Lord, as the body, we can just love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand, and as we... uh